Today we're going to be dealing with the third woe, so Habakkuk 2, starting here at verse 12, and we'll read 12 to 14. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts, that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So far, let us pray. Holy God, indeed we come before you. And we seek your presence so that the word of God would indeed be planted deep within. Lord, all I can do is move my vocal cords and make words Ears can hear, brains can compute, minds can think. But the Spirit alone gives life and understanding and conviction. And so, Lord, we look to you in everything. I pray, Lord, may the words be words of life and truth to each one of us. May we hear by faith and receive willingly and joyfully the milk of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm going to be dealing with the first two verses of this woe and save the last one, verse 14, for next time, Lord willing. Again, for those who have not been part of this series through Habakkuk, I just want to remember, remind each one of where we've been. Habakkuk 1 is about Judah's wickedness. It's not Babylon's wickedness. It's Judah's wickedness. That's the problem. The covenant people, Habakkuk cries out to God saying, what are you doing, God? God answers. He says, I've already been dealing with this. I've raised up Babylon. She will come in and decimate the covenant people. And so Habakkuk says, well, hold on a second. If that's bad, you're bringing in worse pagan people. So he cries out again, and God answers this with a vision, a vision of five woes grounded in two foundational principles that we saw in verses four and five of chapter two. There's two ways to live, two trajectories, two paths of life, and we're all on one of them. Don't kid yourself. You're walking either in the pride of yourself and your own accomplishments, or the just shall live in faith or his faithfulness, looking to Christ, looking to God alone, trusting him. Two two lives, two paths, two ends. And so the last two woes we looked at, the first one, spoke of the idea that the plunderer, which was Babylon, would be plundered. A debt that would eventually be paid. God is not silent. The second woe we looked at last time stresses that evil and its fruit do not provide a secure foundation for the future. Today's woe will build on that. I have three points. They are this, cities of sin, word from the high king, and labors for something. So cities of sin, word from the high king, and labors for something. First of all, cities of sin. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Each (coughs) verse in this, the central central woe, because there's five, right? So the third is the center of it, corresponds to other prophets 
who will say something almost identical to what Habakkuk says. So theologians wonder, is Habakkuk borrowing from them or are they borrowing from Habakkuk? Doesn't really matter who borrowed from who. The principle is this. The holy prophets speak in unison about the mighty words of God. And therefore, what we see in all of the prophets, as you read the minor prophets and the major prophets, speaks the singular message from Almighty God for all times and all places. His word abides. The message is consistent. And that is why it's so good and trustworthy. So verse 12 is echoed in Micah 3 verse 10. But listen to the difference. So look at verse 12, and I'll read Micah 3.10. There it says, They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. You see the difference? Here we're talking about Chaldea, the Babylonians doing this. There Micah speaks of Judah doing it. What that means is it doesn't matter whether someone sits securely in church or is sitting securely at Tim Hortons right now and has no room for God. God's message speaks clearly that if you are establishing a kingdom against his ways, his woe is upon you. Judah, the covenant people, Babylon, the pagan nation, it's the same. Now look at the woes and look at where we've been. There's an escalation, an amplification happening. The first woes Remember, it looked at plundering lands, people, cities, okay? The second woe moves from lands and plundering them and people and cities to now Babylon taking what they've stolen and building homes from that. That was last time's woe. We looked at that. So we're moving from stealing to building your own little mansion. The third woe moves from mansions to cities empires because a city in the bible represents the pinnacle the fruition of mankind's efforts to subdue the earth a city if you think about a city it solidifies into a single unit the gathering of intelligence and skill and community and people into one place right people gather in cities and that's where often you'll find your your culture, you will find your events, you will find the gathering of skills, all these different things, the manipulation of goods, the building of resources, cities and towns. Now God's purposes is that in the building of cities, mankind comes together as a community to form cultures and communities to the glory of God. But after the fall in scripture cities take on a whole new face instead of being the pinnacle of civilization cities are the pinnacles of pride throughout scripture you will see that cities often degrade into collective individualism it's an irony collective individualism unity for the sake of self. It's the tension of the city in the Bible. The first city we know of in the Bible was built by a son of Adam, Cain. 
And guess who he dedicates his city to? Genesis 4, 17, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. No God. Nimrod, Genesis 10, builds more cities. And Cush begat Nimrod and began to be a mighty one in the earth. A Givarim, most likely a giant. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now I'm going to just give a two-second commentary here on Nimrod. That little thing when it says a mighty hunter before the Lord probably means this. Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter of people against the Lord. This guy slew many, many people. And then guess what it says? And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Calneh in the land of Shinar. Where's that? Shinar, Babylon. Then it goes on and it says, Out of that land went forth Ashur, and he builded which other big city? Nineveh of Assyria, and the cities of Rehoboth and Calah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Calah, the same is a great city. He built an empire, this guy. Lots of people gathered together, but built on the blood of others. This guy was wicked. Then we get the next city. Guess which one we talk, see in the Bible? Babel. Babel repeats the arrogance of man, and they said, Let us go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto the heavens, and let us make God a name. No, no, no. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. God will make a name for himself. Did you know that Abraham comes from the line of Shem, and Shem means name? God builds a name. He selects who, and he will build a kingdom by his name and for his glory. The next cities we see in the Bible are Sodom and Gomorrah. They were cities given, as we know, to God-forsaking ab- abominations. Then we get the cities of Egypt. They became the place of enslaving God's people. But the problem isn't in a city, per se. It is The problem is in the heart of man who builds cities over the backs of others for themselves. And so let us learn to see the tension where man builds cities for self and self-adulation and glory. We are called to be part of culture and community. That's not a bad thing in and of itself. There are many blessings to being part of culture. With God at the center, cities and towns and communities can flourish. Think about the blessing of sports and music and medicine and highways and architecture and exploration. Discovering and building together as stewards of God's world. That's the way it ought to be. And so as Christians who love the Lord, we cannot become modern monks separating ourselves from community. That happened in the early church 
Some people would go into isolation and not be part of communities. We can't do that. While we are citizens of heaven, we do still live here on this earth. And so let us take the task and the calling of building community with God at the center, with the highest joy and highest pleasure. Let us share the gospel because that goes hand in hand with the high moral standards that should be part of city building. Let us do our work then as Christians with utmost diligence. Let us be the people that will say, that's a hard worker. He's a faithful worker. He's trustworthy and true and does his work well. Let us be quick at our jobs and at home to unburden others. Let us be slow to point fingers and eager to help others flourish because that's where communities thrive. Are you known as an honest worker? Is it evident at your job that you are a Christian? Let us embrace the education of our children with a God-word focus. Where Babylon uses others, let us serve others. Secondly, second point, word from the high king. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? Now, the main point of this verse is pretty straightforward. Babylon's efforts and cities are useless and vain because God will bring them to destruction. That's the central point. And remember how I said every verse in this central woe is echoed in another part of the prophets? This one is echoed in Jeremiah 51, 58, where it says this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken, and her high gates shall be burned with fire, and the people shall labor in vain, and the folk in the fire, and they shall be weary. Sounds very similar to this verse. Now look, first of all, in the text, look at your Bible carefully at that word, behold. Because behold gets used in verse 4. At the beginning of this woe, it gets used in verse 13, in the middle of this woe, almost as a pinnacle, and it gets used in verse 19 at the end of this woe. And so it calls us peculiarly in these three well-positioned spots to behold, to mark the beginning, center, and end of God's pronouncement in the vision. Take notice, it says. The downcast eyes of God's people are called at these central points to look up in faith because the tribunal of God has come to a judgment, to a speaking. And so look, now perhaps, perhaps you came here discouraged this morning. Perhaps there's division at home, in your family, you may be your extended family. Perhaps there's problems at work and they're eating you up. You, you didn't sleep well because of what's been going on. Perhaps you've been following the news and you're just shocked at the events of this world and you just feel at some level just in despair. Maybe you're anxious about these things. 
The Bible calls us to behold God, particularly in those points. God is not shocked by what is happening. Be hope. Take courage. The king of heaven is watching over the events of this world. So be hopeful. God is not distant. He's not detached. He's not calloused. He involves himself with perfect judgment in the affairs of mankind. What's the most central spot in scripture that we know that? He involves himself in the affairs of man. Is it not when Jesus became flesh, behold, a son? Now look carefully at the text. Behold, is it not of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, of hosts that the people shall labor in vain? Capital L-O-R-D in your Bible refers to Jehovah, Jehovah. This reminds us of the covenant name of the Almighty God, that is how he reveals himself to his people. And it reminds us that particularly in this point, when the waters of God's providence seem the most turbulent, the people of Jehovah have nothing to fear. Because Jehovah is his name of relation, covenant protection, and care for Israel. But to that name, Jehovah, is added a little extra title. The Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth. I'll say that on purpose, Jehovah Sabaoth. Keep that in mind, Sabaoth. We're going to get back to that. The Lord of hosts. When you hear that, it means the God of angel armies. The God of the armies of heaven is watching this piddly army of Babylon building a city. Behold, there is a ruler who is much more powerful than Babylon. And so this title, Jehovah Sabaoth, presses us to realize that word has reached, as it were, the citadels of the high king of heaven. Word of abuse, as it were, has gotten into the corridors of heaven's glorious halls. And we have to picture almost in our, in our mind's eye the high king of heaven arising from his throne, calling his covenant people who have beckoned for help to see he has pronounced a judgment on their oppressors. That's the image we need to take from this whole idea of the high king of heaven. And thus by mentioning the Lord of hosts, the God of angel army, the, high, the vision is highlighting that Babylon's pride is an offense against God, not just against his people. That all of pride is a Godward, a vertical shaking in the fists. It is idolatry. To touch Israel is to touch the God of Israel. And we need to remember that as a church, when we see the church persecuted and the church maligned and the church scoffed, they are affronting God himself. Now we, seeing that, we learn that the root of all pride really is idolatry. Now before we, we look at Babylon and we say, that's Babylon, look how bad Babylon is. Babylon lurks within each one of us. 
Babylon's pride is very resident even in Christians as we see the internal conflict within. How quickly our proud little minds try to compete for the glory that belongs only to the Lord of hosts. Oh, I know this all too well. How often I catch my mind saying, well, not my mind, I, I say something stupid and proud, and it might even be a good thing. And I take credit for it, or I'm smug about it, or I'm proud about it, and I'm just like, wow, wow, I am stealing glory that only belongs to God. Pride is a beast that cannot be tamed. It must be killed. Do you hate your pride? Do you realize pride sneaks up even in the most pious? sneaks up in the loudest, we call them proud, but also in the quiet people. Pride is everywhere. She will ambush as a stalking tiger at any moment. Pride is not defeated by self-discipline. Self-discipline can actually feed the monster. The root of arrogance is misplaced worship, misappropriated, misappropriated greatness. And therefore, the answer to pride, whether we profess Christ or not, the answer is the same. It is a steady, rich, and right view of the majesty of the Lord, that alone can humble errant pride. Beholding Christ, his greatness, his worth, his excellency, that alone can dislodge that great beast that keeps coming back. This week I spoke with somebody about that. And I realized it all too much for myself. The lower my view of God, the greater my view of myself or others. Point number three, labors for something. The whole thing, if you look at verse 13, is a question. Behold, is it not of the Lord that these people shall labor for nothing and everything shall be for the fire? You see, in the Bible, the answer is obvious. Is it not of the Lord? And your answer should be, well, yes, it is. It is of God. That is called a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is used a lot in the Bible, rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question simply is this. It is a question where the answer is patently obvious. And they are given in the Bible to drive home a point. Because when you ask somebody a rhetorical question to which the answer is obvious, it drills the point into their own mind because they answer it in their mind. And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess that's true. That's why the Bible uses them so, um, so much. Now, there's practical wisdom in rhetorical questions. Start using them. They're really great ways to make a point and to allow Scripture's truths to drill deep into our hearts. They're instructive tools. That's a side note on the concept of questions. But notice the question centers around what God will do to Babylon. Notice it says, the people shall labor in the very fire. It's interesting because 
Fire in ancient cultures in particular were used to stay warm and to cook a meal. But here, the fires are not used to sustain life. They will be used to destroy life. Buildings built by blood and iniquity were destined for the fire, for the flame, and the very lumber would be fuel for destruction. The early Jewish historian Josephus writes that King Nebuchadnezzar had constructed three walls of brick around his city to protect it. Now, brick doesn't burn easy, but what's inside the city burns easy. And what good is that? What good are three walls when God has uttered his judgment? You can build ten walls. It won't matter. It won't do a thing. Stephen Langen was a 13th century Archbishop of Canterbury. And he tells this story about a king who built a grand house with money acquired through robbery and extortion, built by blood. Now the king asks his clerk, his city clerk, to compose something for him. He says, can you make a memorial inscription on the gate of the house? And so the clerk says, yes, master, I will do that. Guess what he writes? A house built on wrong will not last for long. I don't think the king was too pleased with that. Notice this fire is put in parallel in the text, as Hebrew often does, with the next phrase, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. It basically means all of your forced labor is for nothing. The scars on the backs of the slaves, the corpses of those who died in the streets under the heavy burdens you forced upon them was all for nothing. It's interesting because slave labor is the opposite of waged labor. At least when you have wage labor, even if the house gets burned down, these people have something to show for it. They have their wages with which they can now go do other things. And Jesus says the laborer is worthy of his hire. But Babylon withholds hire and enslaves people. And so both building and builder are rendered worthless. And Jeremiah says the same thing. He says, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages and giveth him not for his work. God is very interested that we recompense people for their work. And so to pay unfair wages is an affront to God. To squander somebody's efforts is an affront to the Almighty. Now remember I said that you have to remember this word Jehovah Tzabayot. Jehovah Tzabayot. There's a link in the New Testament between rich people exploiting their workers and the very title, because don't forget it's a Hebrew word, not a Greek word. But watch what James does with this title. James 5.4. He says, Behold, the hire of your laborers who have reaped down your fields, 
which of you, which is of you kept back by fraud, fraud crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. James finds it appropriate to take all of the Old Testament rich titles of God of angel armies, transplant that, transliterate that into the Greek to remind the rich that the God they are stealing from is the almighty God of Israel. And all the woes that came upon Babylon and Assyria and upon Israel are reminders to the rich who exploit the poor. It's very important to take this point home. Oh, and it's easy when you're in charge, when you're the business owner, or you're the one taking care of a massive corporation, you're the manager, it's easy to justify it. Oh, many tyrants have said, oh, I'm building the walls for the protection of my people. How many communist dictators pretend to be serving the people? That's the whole principle of communism. All of us together. In the meantime, millions are deprived of their lives. Millions are deprived of the ability to use their talents. Masons are forced to become welders. Artists are mandated into the mines. And all of this to dial it back to cities that are built on blood and iniquity, whereas Christians ought to see cities thrive by people being paid fairly, by people being able to work according to their talents and their gifts. You see the opposites here. There's no blessing on cultures that operate by the principles of Babylon. Now, parents... Those of you who are in the workforce, those of you who are poised to enter the workforce, young people, we need to recognize that God designed it in such a way that to construct good houses and communities, we must have good households. Houses come from households. The values, mom and dad, that you instill at home will establish values at work. Isn't it sheer ignorance to toil for something that has no lasting value? How many people become wealthy, have many what we would consider valuables, but are poor in knowing what value actually is if you ask your kids have you thought about this what makes something valuable the link between God's design and value is unmistakable it only can be founded in righteousness are you willing then to identify where you may have compromised values and to work on them at home and abroad. There's an old story set in the Middle Ages about the construction of one of Europe's greatest cathedrals. A nobleman is walking around as he sees the workers busy toiling and he asks them about their work and he says to the stonemason, what are you actually up to? And the stonemason explains the precision he takes into raising a plumb wall. 
The glass worker points out the details in the leaded glass window. The carpenter describes the wooden frame that supports the building. And then the nobleman thinks he's got everybody and then he looks around and way in the corner he sees a peasant woman with a broom cleaning up the trash. He goes up to her, yes my lord, and he asks her, what are you doing? Guess what her answer is? I'm building a cathedral for the glory of God. Isn't that ultimately where true value is? God's glory in everything. The lowliest woman was zealous for the highest accomplishments. The glory of God. What are you most zealous about? The money? The status? The image? The building? The results? Or God's glory? Therein lies the rub. Therein lies Babylon's wrong. What will be our answer about our homemaking, our carpentry, our school, our recreation when we give an account? I want to reflect for a second upon the seriousness of the fire that awaits Babylon. The fires of God's judgment are already glowing in his spoken word against anyone who is still part of Babylon's exploitations. If you die outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fires of hell will burn forever on the fuel of your rebellious soul. There will be no dimming of the flame of the wrath of the Almighty God upon your soul. It will go on forever and forever and forever. Unto the ages of the ages, the wrath of God abides upon the unjust. The Bible says that the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Oh, consider the seriousness of the city you are building, whose glory you are serving. Consider this morning, we all have souls. I woke up this morning, and I don't know, for the strangest reason, I was thinking about death, and I thought of corpses whose souls had left them. And then this morning on the way to church, you drive past the cemetery. These people have ended their lives, some in glory, some in eternal wrath. Which will it be for you? The Puritan John Trapp said, There is a cold sweat upon all the limbs of Antichrist already. And therefore, consider that we, in and of ourselves, are spring-loaded to work for vanity to trust in our own works, in our own merits. Can our good deeds save us? Will God permit the proud citizens bearing Babylon's guilt into Zion's glory? Will Babylon and Zion coexist forever? Can you be a worker one day in Babylon, the next in Zion, back and forth, and back and forth? Do the merchants 
of Babylon have access to the markets of Zion? Is there any gold given to slaves under Babylon's tyranny? These are rhetorical questions. Jesus simply said, the flesh profiteth nothing. How miserable is the work laid by man without the grace of God. Oh, sinner this morning, any of you, if you are outside of Christ, you are all dross, no gold. Outside of the perfect robes of Christ, all that is left is weary labors of vanity. How sad when you look through church history to see the efforts of monks, to see all the works of empty religion, all, all the prayers of some people, all the services, all the rituals, all the blood of those crawling up the stairs in Rome to try to seek justification in the meantime, scorning the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is you this morning. Will you not abandon the rickety fortresses that you have built of self-achievement, self-merit, self-praise, and flee to the kingdom that Christ is building? Will you consider the grace he offers you today? Complete forgiveness from all your sins. Completely washed clean. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And becoming an heir of his kingdom. And that kingdom will go on forever and ever. There's nothing weariless, wearisome about his kingdom. All of this accomplished 100% on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is for the unbeliever. I'm calling you. Come. But believers gathered this morning, the fires of God's judgment will also pass on us. Please turn with me as we close this sermon to 1 Corinthians 10. 10. It should be 3. Typo in my notes. 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 12. I'll start at verse 11. Now, no other foundation can, no, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. See, the fires of God's judgment on the believer purges everything they have done. This is about what we have done as servants. This doesn't bring us into the kingdom, but this talks about how we serve in the kingdom. 
The fire proves, it tests, what was your life really all about? You're a Christian, wonderful, washed in the blood of Christ. But what kind of life did we live? Will our labors as Christians be wood, hay, stubble, or gold and silver and precious stone? You see, look at the opposites. When it's gold and silver and precious stones, everything of it will last forever. Oh, the beauty of abiding labor. The many prayers a believer has for lost children are not in vain. The many hours of counseling your children with scripture is an eternal investment of gold. The countless days and years when you build homes, when you manage crews, when you tend to the animals, when you harvest your crops, when done to the glory of God is gold that lasts and will be richly rewarded because God says this in Samuel. He says, I will honor them that honor me and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now think about it. How many opportunities don't we get every day to invest in gold and silver and precious metals? Perhaps it's patience with the cashier at the till. Perhaps it's the tenderness for the glory of God with a newborn child. Perhaps it's the compassion you can show to a lost co-worker. Perhaps it's the courage that we need when society capitulates. We will stand gold. Perhaps it's thankfulness in good times and in bad times. That is gold that is lasts forever. You see, all of the things of earth, everything we do here finds its orbit, its center, when it is circling around the sun of righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The things of earth then simultaneously are the things of heaven. So how do we nurture that kind of faith, that kind of hope, that kind of life? Is it not, as I said earlier, a great admiration of Jesus Christ? Which soldier will not line up willingly behind the most worthy leader? Which worker will not gladly serve the most honorable master? Isn't gazing with hope, joy, expectation, and admiration on Jesus Christ, the only way to live. The Apostle Paul ends Corinthians, the same book, chapter 15, saying this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Instead of weariness for naught as Babylon, these weary ones are blood bought. The city of man will fall to the dust. From which it is built. The city of God. The new Jerusalem. Will shine into eternity. 
for she is built from heaven's mines. She is secured in heaven's glories. And she is fastened tightly to heaven's king. Let us labor for his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And though the storms of this world blow fiercely against your church, she stands secure, anchored into heaven itself. What a mercy. Oh, God, may we be hopeful. May we be zealous for your kingdom and your righteousness, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.